the issue at stake was not so much that Henry wanted to kill her because she was Protestant. The issue was more that, you know, she was part of this Mar- elaborate marital politics yeah, marital yeah. and court politics. And so she played it well. She just she didn't deny her faith, but she just told him, "I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to dis, you know, you're you're smarter than me. I'm not trying to dispute with you. You know, you're my husband. You're in charge." She kind of just mm. stroked his ego, and he backed down. The Lineage Journey Podcast, unscripted conversations that aim to help you on the journey of discovering your lineage. Join us as we take a deeper look into past lineage episodes and see the lessons we can learn for today. Suki lives in Melbourne, Australia with husband and two daughters, combining her duties as mother and wife. She is also a formidable writer and historian and has been a part of the Lineage team since the first year that we launched. She has written hundreds of articles and scripts for Lineage and other media ministries and has a passion to share how history shapes identity and how our identity defines our mission and purpose in life. Suki is a valued member of the Lineage team and we're glad that we can interview her today. Suki, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Just where where are you joining us from today? I am in Melbourne. I'm at the Faith FM studios in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, thanks for joining us. You are, I don't know, 13 hours ahead of me right now, but thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule as a wife, a mother of two, an author, a scriptwriter, and many, many other things that you do. Thanks for taking the time to join us. And for this Lineage Journey podcast, we're going to be discussing a subject I know that's dear to your heart and I think to many, many of our listeners as well as we talk about the women of the Reformation. The women of the Reformation. Oftentimes the men get the the spotlight and the highlight and maybe they did play a bigger role. I don't know. We'll discuss about that as we go on. But I believe the women played a, a key role, maybe one that has not been focused on as much in the past. But uh, you're recently an author. Could you share a little bit about the book that you published and and a little bit behind that and then we'll we'll go from there yes so 2020 was really exciting for me even though we were um, in the middle of covid i wrote a book um the background to the book really is um fairly straightforward i i i've always been interested in the reformation i've always been interested in that period of time i remember when i was really young i must have been about 12 i read the great controversy for the first time with my mother and I, I was just really fascinated with the stories of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I got, um, I just connected with Lineage um, because at that time we were doing season one and uh, I reached out and connected with you guys. And since then, I've been writing content and managing the website. And um, in 2018, we decided to do a series of blog posts on women of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And I started digging into the history of some of these women that I, I'd found really fascinating. And um, I was really blown away. I was blown away by the stories. Um, and I was blown away also by the fact that I'd never heard about them. And I was thinking, if I haven't heard about them, well, 
I mean, how many other people have heard about them? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started digging into it. I wrote the four blog posts. And then over time, as I continued to populate the blog, I wrote more about women from that period of time. And I thought, hey, it'd be good if I could turn this into a book. Um, and not just a book of facts, but a book of stories. Um, because people like a good story. And I thought that a lot of the information that I was reading about these women um just had like really good stories tacked on to them as well and so yeah that was that's really the background for the book um it was the time that i spent <laughs> wading through reams of information for my mm-hmm. work for lineage <laughs> well it's a great book i had the chance to read it a few weeks ago and now thank you for putting that together i know several people have bought it already and and, and i've been blessed by it as well so so thank you for that so i mean as you said it wasn't necessarily always a passion that you had but you know the, there was circumstances of the moment that caused you to research and write these and then it you know what started that was a blog for a website has has now turned into a book and i think that's often the case in life with with many projects we start them out with with one thing and then the lord has something bigger for them than, than what we originally started them out as so yeah, yeah. 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 I think, yeah, that's really true. Yep. Do you think, I mean, I mentioned this slightly in my introduction, you know, we've got, you've got eight women that you highlight in your book. Obviously there's, there's a, there's, there's a lot more women than that that you could have put in there. And um, maybe you can share a bit later on how you decided on, on, on which eight to put in, but do you think that the role of women was equal to men or it just wasn't recorded or it's still a key role, but you know, what, what's your thoughts on that subject? I think in, in the the early modern in early modern Europe, because that's you know that's the period of history that the book is about. The women are, you know, part of the Reformation, and so most of them are you know live during that period of early modern history. Um, women weren't equal; they weren't even perceived as being equal. I think at that point in history, um, and for many many years later, women were looked on as. Um, commodities really like regardless of your station in life whether you were a peasant or whether you were um, a queen you really as a woman had two roles if you were a part of the nobility then you were expected to marry well because you know whoever you married would give your family some kind of leverage political financial and so you were a commodity to be traded on the marriage market um, and then you were just supposed to have kids because you, you know, that was really the role of even the queen. Okay. Even the mm-hmm. queen of England was just there to produce the next heir. Um, and if she couldn't do it, well, then <laughs> she needed to be removed and somebody else needed to be given her job. Um, and so I think that that was the view of women from, for just many years during that period of early modern history and mm-hmm. later. And you, you see that reflected in the the literature of the time in how few uh you know how few female narratives there are um women were just not focused on um and so the few uh female narratives that we do have or the f- little bits of information that we do have are women that really rock the boat you know they had to make a big splash in order to get noticed and um so that that's something that i noticed when i was first researching Mm-hmm. What would you say are some of the key points that your book tries to address? When I was writing the book, um, I really wanted to look at the idea of religious liberty because I feel like the Reformation um, and the period immediately after it, this was a big 
big issue, you know, a social issue, uh, because during that time, they, they had this idea of the divine right of kings. Um, they had, you know, this concept of how the king was uh, basically uh, almost in control of the minds of his his subjects. And then the king in turn was controlled by by the church, by the pope. And so I just found it really fascinating, this idea of how religious liberty, freedom of conscience, um, independent thought was something that was basically censored during that period of time. And mm-hmm. so that was one thing that I really wanted to look at. Okay. Liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing that I really wanted to look at was the courage that these women had, you know, being mm-hmm. women uh, during this period of time. Uh, for them to make the choices that they made, for them to act the way they acted, took an enormous amount of courage. Um, and I thought that that was worth talking about, you know, worth highlighting, because I don't think I don't think even now, you know, we would fully comprehend their courage. Um, and the third thing that I wanted to talk about is the idea of faith. How willing we are to um, choose um, to stand for what we believe in, even when things are hard. Um, mm. You know, how willing are we to make hard choices um, for God? Uh, and so, those were really the three key points: religious liberty, faith, and then courage. Hmm. And I think those are all things that are relevant to to women today. Like, if if we could learn those lessons today, whether women or men, those are all key things, understanding the, the importance of religious liberty, courage, and, and how faith needs to be integral to, to who we are as people. So, yeah. Um, a couple of, I mean, and maybe let's kind of delve into a few characters of the book. I mean, your first chapter in the book is Kat, Katerina von Bora, and she's a fascinating character. I, I love her story and just, you know, I, I can't remember what, when it was a few years ago when I found out that she was a, a nun who escaped and, and then marries Martin Luther. It's like, it's a type of thing you, you would write about in a, in a fiction story, but then you realize that this is the real life of the one of the greatest reformers that that there is so in what ways was was i don't know was she, was she a role model for a protestant home or a pastor's wife i mean because we didn't have pastor's wives before this she was kind of the first one really wasn't she yeah yeah and i think <laughs> truth is stranger than fiction right sometimes and i think um with the story of katharina von bora her story when i read about the whole um escaping the convent in fish barrels. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I have got to tell this story. Uh, I wrote it for, for the blog on the Lineage I website. I mean, fish stink, imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was thinking they were really brave. And then even 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 more fascinating was the fact that Martin Luther is the one that organized their escape. Yeah. And so this idea of this renegade monk springing these nine nuns from a convent in the dead of night, um, uh-huh. <laughs> they were pretty revolutionary. Um, and then, you know, added to that was the fact that she eventually married him and their home became kind of like you were saying like the first home of the reformation you know this idea of clergy being married was so new so strange um uh if i remember correctly they got married in 1525 um and so it was still early days in the reformation yeah, you know yeah. mm-hmm. um it was just something that was starting to to just take hold and this idea that this monk would not only like leave the church, but then he'd spring this nun and then he'd marry the nun. I mean, um, 
I remember reading, and I put this in the book, um, Henry VIII of England wrote and told him, you know, the only reason you wanted to become a Protestant is because you wanted to get married. And then somebody else wrote and told him, oh, you know, any offspring that you have will be the Antichrist. And it was just, this, it was a big uproar, wow. you know. Um, That's but a bit rich coming from Henry VIII. <laughs> I know, but this was 10 years before he broke with the church, right? So he uh, he was in a position where he felt he could judge. But I thought that was really interesting. Their home was the first, really first Protestant home. I mean, you did have Ulrich Zwingli and Anna Zwingli um, who got married around this or maybe a bit after, but they're, I mean, because Luther had made such waves in Europe, you know, he had just openly stood up to the Pope. This was after the Diet of Worms, you know, it was, it was, it was a big deal. And so for him to get married, their home was looked on really as one of the first uh, Protestant homes, what it would look like for a pastor's home, you know, mm-hmm. to function and mm-hmm. operate. And she was essentially the first real um, Protestant pastor's wife. Mm-hmm. And so um, but I think she was equal to the task. You yeah. know, so. how, how would you think she complimented Martin Luther? In, I mean, he was a, a single monk, obviously, like all were before that. How did she compliment him or how was how was his ministry broadened by marrying her that, that maybe he wouldn't have had without? I think it's really interesting when you look at their story. She was not afraid to stand up to him, which I thought is really interesting. Martin Luther was um, Martin Luther was two things. One was uh, he was a man who was just in a lot of emotional and mental turmoil. Uh, two was he was really a strong willed man. I mean, mm. he was really mm-hmm. strong willed and opinionated. And so it was just this really interesting mix of personality. I think Katharina von Bora was not afraid to stand up to him. She was as tough as he was. Um, and so, you know, w- one thing that I, I read about that I read about was because um, Luther had these table talk sessions where he had people in his home gather around his table and they debated stuff. And a lot of the table talk sessions were recorded. And he there was one instance where, you know, he was debating this point and Katharina jumped into the fray and she debated him into the ground until he finally was like, fine, I give up. You know, wow. you and she basically he basically said, you know, you have sway in my home and then you debate with me. And he was just <laughs> he was just really angry. He called her Lord Katie. That was his nickname. Uh, that's it. Yeah, Lord, Lord Katie. Katie. Uh-huh. And that was an actual he, he would use that um, name when he wrote to his friends. And so she was able to handle him. She she didn't like she didn't back down. She pushed back. Um, but I think she was also really um, she was really organized. I think he wasn't really organized. She was able to take over the running of the home mm-hmm. and um, take over the care of the children and just do things that he couldn't do. And so I think her personality really complimented him in that sense. She was more organized. I think she was a lot more mentally stable. I haven't really read anything specific about that. But when you read between the lines, you see Luther really struggled, um, you know, with with just emotionally, he struggled a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Katharina didn't. So I think that, you know, she was a lot more emotionally stable and then she was as strong a personality as he was. So it was really- I mean, this is a, uh, I don't know, subjective or conjecture question. Do you think he would have been as effective without her? Or is that, I mean, it's hard to, to, to gauge and he had already done some things before he married her, but yeah. yeah. I think she made him more effective in the later years of his ministry. I mean, by the time they get got married, he'd already done the bulk of his you know, a lot of it had happened. You know, the 95 Theses had happened. He'd already disputed with Dr. Eck at Leipzig. He'd already been to the Diet of Worms. He'd, you know, he'd already translated the English Bible, uh, sorry, translated the Bible into German, you know, at Wartburg. 
So a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of things had happened. Uh, but I think, you know, when she, when they got married, it was more um, more that that it was, you know, the upheaval, the really big upheavals of the early, you know, the early period of his career, those big upheavals, you know, the, the break with the church, all of that had happened. And then after they get ma- got married, his his work was a little bit more stable. You know, if that Mm -hmm. before they got married, yeah, like all the big things, the peasant revolts, all of that had happened before they got married. After they got married, it was more this stable continuation of building on what he had already worked so Mm -hmm. hard to establish. And I think she helped with that. Mm -hmm. She helped with the stability and the continuity um, of, you know, the, the later years of his ministry. So I think that she was important. Did they have children? Yes, they had six, I believe. They lost a few. They they lost, I think, two. I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but I know they had about six children, their oldest son, Hans. Uh, and they lost, uh, I think, two daughters. So okay. they knew what it was like to be parents. Uh, and they also, they struggled over the grief of losing their children. So that was, mm. that was hard. Mm. But I think the, fa- the, the most fascinating thing about them is is how they actually got married. Yes. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> so, so just to tell the story, it's one of my favorite parts of her story because she, so he sprung her from the, from the, um, the Marian Thorn convert in Nimshin in about 1523. And then, uh, there were nine of them. And he took final, Luther took financial responsibility for these nine nuns because the thing is, in, that time, you know, during that period of time, if you're a woman, you couldn't just be like, I'm going to leave you and go set up a house by myself. Like women needed a male protector mm-hmm. in Europe at that time. They needed a male sponsor, not just to provide for them, but just to keep just for them to be respectable. They needed a man behind them. So this idea of divorce, this idea of living on your own, being single was just it was not an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when they left the convent, Luther agreed to sponsor them until they could find husbands and all the Nine, eight of the nine nuns got married, and and Katrina couldn't. You know, she really liked this guy, um, Hieronymus Baumgartner, but his family was like, no, because she's a runaway nun. Like it was just not respectable to marry a runaway nun. And then she got desperate, and she wrote to Nicholas von Amstoff. In my book, I, I, um, I mean, I write the scene as a conversation. She actually wrote to him. And she told him, look, I am at my wit's end and I need to get married. And so they try to get her married to this other older guy. And she's like, I am not going to be like, she, she didn't roll over and let them just uh, marry her off. And so then she said to Nicholas, look, Nicholas, the only two options are either I marry you or Martin Luther. And Nicholas was like, I don't think you're marrying me. <laughs> and so he set her up with um, with Martin Luther. So it was really interesting. She was so progressive for her time. I don't think she thought about being progressive. I thought she was, I think she was just really strong-willed and really desperate. So she just told the guys, look, get your act together and one of you has got to marry me. Um, and up until the very last minute, Luther was writing to his friends saying, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to get married. And then he got married and everybody was like, wait, what? <laughs> what just happened here? And so it's really, really, it was really interesting how she kind of, um, not that she forced him, but I think she pushed him into a corner. <laughs> and uh, it was, yeah, the way she handled it was really interesting. I think it's fascinating that she <laughs> that she proposed to him, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. 
I think is a great snippet of history that maybe not too many people know. But yeah, I don't know if we'd say she leaves a precedent for for people today, but at least she, she, she the precedent is definitely a, a countercultural one and one where they yes. they weren't bound by societal norms and and you know they 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 made it work for them themselves. So yes. they, you know, yeah. And I think they were really practical. I mean, you know, as mm. a girl in this day and age, I'm happy that my husband proposed to me, you know, um, but in that period of time, she was just literally desperate. You know, she was she had no romantic notions. She's just like, I need a man to provide for me. <laughs> you sprung mm. me. You told me that you were going to be responsible for me. Now you need to take responsibility. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. Like she just kind of held him accountable. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, your book's got some other fascinating characters in there. I mean, maybe just share with how did you decide you're going to pick these ones? And uh, there's some obviously you, you haven't, you haven't, well, you, you can't put everyone in there, but you, you've got yeah. some other fascinating characters in there. I think um, the f- there were, I did a few for um, the Lineage blog and I think three of those four, I just, I love their stories. So Katrina Von Bora. Charlotte Abelest and Louise de Coligny. I really, really like their stories. The other women, Marie Durong, I loved her story also because I watched him. I never heard of Marie Durong. And then when I watched the lineage episode and I had to research and write about her for the lineage episode, I really fell mm-hmm. in love with her story um, and her brother Pierre's story as well. So those four were were mainly from um, and those four. And then Catherine Brandon, that was also from the blog because later on I found her story and I wrote about her. Uh, those were mainly from the blog from my work with lineage. Catherine Pa. Um, I didn't write a blog post on her, but I read a book about her and uh, the, there was this entire section of her story that's recorded in Fox's book of martyrs that I'd never, I'd never, um, heard about, about how she was nearly arrested and beheaded, um, because of this, this basically political plot between, um, you know, the, 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 the old religion, uh, in England wanting to get rid of her because she was so staunchly Protestant. And as I read this book and then I read Fox, I realized, wow, she made a significant contribution to the Reformation in England, both by with her writing and her influence. And I thought, um, wow, I want to tell her story. It's really, really mm. important that I tell her story. And so that was, that was uh, the, uh, the other one. Olympia Murata, again, I didn't write a blog about her, but I read her story in a book too and I thought this is really cool especially her mm-hmm. escape from um from one of the towns there and I thought wow I I want to tell this story so mm-hmm. the majority of that was from the research that I did for the lineage okay. blog mm-hmm. and then that created an interest uh and then I I started reading other ones and I think what what made me what led me to pick them specifically is that as I was reading their stories researching their stories there was some really good just stories in there. You know, you mm-hmm. read it and you think this would read really well in fiction. <laughs> so you can actually write this as a story. You know, this is not just a, a narration of facts. You could at least at least actually tell this as a story and it would be really good. And so I think that's why I picked it for its story, pick the stories for their story value. Mm. Um, and then I just built in the, the historical facts into that. Yeah. Okay. And for those listening, if you're wondering where you can get the book from, there's a variety of places you can buy the book on the Lineage Journey website. That's one place where you can get it. You can also buy it at the Science Publishing for those who live in Australia. Uh, like, Adventist Book Centers. Adventist, Adventist Book Centers. Book Center. In Australia and New Zealand. Yep. And I believe it's also on Kindle, if I'm correct. Yes, it's on Kindle. And uh, by the time the podcast, by the time this podcast is released, it will be on Amazon, uh, Booktopia and Book Depository as well. 
So you can get it on all those all those platforms as well. All those platforms as well. Lineage is a non-profit organization kept running by generous donors like you. Support us today on patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. We're doing a book giveaway for one winner selected at random. Follow us on all our socials. Look out for the giveaway post, like, comment and tag a friend using the hashtag the lineage journey podcast. Sisters in Arms is available to purchase at lineagejourney.com forward slash shop. History shapes identity. Identity shapes mission. And a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Lineage Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli, from England to France, Switzerland to Germany, the light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the dark ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the Great Awakening to the Great Disappointment and beyond, Lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time, immersing you in the places, the stories, and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com. Lineage Journey not only produces video content, but instructive and illuminating resources to teach young and old about Christian history. Lineage has produced an educational coloring book for people of all ages. It includes original artwork from Ashley Bloom, highlighting the various heroes of the Reformation. Each scene has a matching story, and there are also QR codes to connect you to the website for more information and to watch the videos. There are also fun facts and memorable quotes to accompany the scenes to color in. Designed for young and old alike, get your copy now at lineagejourney.com. So what, one of your your characters you look at in the book is called Margaret, Margaret of Navarre. And and when that chapter ends, it I, I kind of I want to know more about her life. It's a fascinating uh, insight into the life of someone who continued to live as a Protestant in a Catholic home. And I think in many ways, she's a model for people today in certain situations where you, you, you're, you're, you've got your convictions, you've got your family, and, and they go in a different way. But yet she still was able to stand for her convictions at the same time as not maybe break that bond with her family as well yeah um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write her story uh, Margaret of Navarre was just in an incredibly um, privileged position um, mm. 
mostly because, well, I, it was kind of, it was really interesting because her, th- there was just the three of them. Her father was a distant cousin of the king of France. Um, and French law forbade women from ever taking the throne. They had a law called the Salic Law, and only men could take the throne. Hmm. And so what happened was if you, uh, if you know, if a king got married and his wife didn't produce a male heir, then the throne would go to the nearest cousin in line. You know, they were called mm-hmm. princes of the blood. And Margaret's father was a prince of the blood. And when King Louis Twelfth died, the throne went to her brother, <clears throat> Francis. And Margaret and her mother were just devoted to Francis. And, um, you know, lots of historians, secular historians, Christian historians, they all talk about the kind of bond that Margaret had with her brother, Francis. They were really, really close. It's like <clears throat> Margaret just poured her entire life into Francis. They had this really close bond. Um, in fact, when he took the throne, it was um, their mother and then Margaret that really ran the court, not even Francis's wife. Um, oh, she wasn't okay. really in there. You know, Margaret was the one that hosted the parties. She was the one that was, a dip, you know, the forward face of the diplomatic liaising in a lot of the cases. Um, she was just the life of the court, more so than even the queen consort. And so they had this really incredible bond. And then... Um, as I was reading, there were, you know, there were these instances where I read about where she really pushed the envelope with Protestantism. She didn't go fully Protestant. You know, there were a little bit of mystical ideas with her. But what, what did happen is she believed in justification by faith, this idea mm. of forgiveness and grace and faith. And, and that was really pushing the envelope. Her brother was indulgent and a lot of the times he kind of just turned a blind eye. It was not really a big deal for him at that time, Protestantism in France. It didn't meddle with his with his sovereignty. His power, yeah. Yeah, but then when it started to kind of impact his his sovereignty, his his power on the throne, especially French kings, it was a, a really big thing, this, um, you know, this the divine right of kings and, and the absolutism, where the king had absolute power over the nobility, more so than even in England, because in England, the, the nobility had a little bit, little bit more power, a little bit more leeway, but in, in France, the king really wanted to have that kind of absolute sway. And, um, and then she found that she and her brother were, were starting to clash. And they really clashed over, I know, after the affair of the placards. And I'd never heard about the affair of the placards. It's funny. I mean, I read The Great Controversy and I, I was aware of it, but I hadn't really understood it till I watched the, you know, till we did the episode with Lineage and I had to research it. And then, then mm-hmm. to see how that episode strained Margaret's relationship with her brother. And, um, I mean, I read about it in, in some Christian history sources, and then I read about it in um, this purely academic source as well, um, done by these two professors out of Columbia University, where they talk about how um, that incident, uh, you know, when they read, when you read letters that Margaret wrote to Francis, it strained their relationship potentially for the rest of their lives. Um, and I thought that would have taken wow. a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write about that. That's actually mm. why I wanted to mm. write that story because I think it's so relevant. You know, when we when we have beliefs, especially in the time that we live in, when you're a Christian and you have beliefs that are so radically divergent from the norm, especially if you're within the same family, I wanted to look at the dynamic of how faith affects family relationships mm. and how important, yeah. yeah, it's important and how she really they really it was really hard. Um, and yet she, you know, how they did their best to kind of 
keep their relationship going. I mean, they didn't fall out completely, their relationship. They continued, you know, they had a relationship for the rest of their lives, but it was strained. It was never mm-hmm. the same again. Um, and I thought that was something that I really wanted to look at and explore. And the kind of courage that it would have taken Margaret to do that as a woman. Because mm. really, um, she w- was dependent on Francis as king of France. She was queen of Navarre, definitely. But Navarre was a small state. And if you look at the politics of the time, uh, Navarre at that time was, you know, France was divided in the sense that Spain had already taken a part of Navarre. And so the sovereignty of Navarre depended on um, how willing France was to protect them. Mm. And so, uh, you know, it, it was political. If, like if Francis cut off his support of Navarre, that would have been disastrous. Um, and, uh, and, but she, you know, she, that, that was so many considerations mm. and Francis cut off his support of her personally. She would have been destitute, you know, mm-hmm. um, she was dependent on him. Yeah. So she wrote a book, maybe just share a, a few comments yes. on that. The, the so mirror she, of the sinful soul. Yes. Yeah, so she wrote a book called the mirror of the sinful soul, which basically covered the idea of justification by faith. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, and uh-huh. then, you know, the, 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 the the Department of Theology at the University of Paris or the Sorbonne, as we know it today, uh, picked up the book and they made a huge hue and cry over it. Um, there was a um, monk there called Noel Bida. He wanted her to be tried for heresy, you know, and it was the, it just, he just whipped up the the Parliament. The Parliament of uh, France at that time was like the judicial body that tried heretics and he whipped them up into a frenzy. They wanted to like prosecutor for being a heretic and Francis had to come in and like save his sister um, and put down the revolt. Uh, but then interestingly, that book uh, was one of the first books written by a woman, uh, you know, at that time it was, it was really cool. And then that book made its way to England and the young princess Elizabeth, uh, she translated that book for her stepmother, Queen Catherine Parr. Um, hmm. It was for the Christmas, it was a Christmas There's gift. A- Connection. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk and, about uh, Catherine Parr in a minute. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And so I think it was really fascinating how they influenced each other, how women influenced each other yeah, during this yeah. time. They were like a network. Yeah. Yeah, we'll come back to that. But um, the next character I wanted to ask you about is Marie Durand. I mean, I, she was one of the first. I mean, she's she, we include her in in our season of Lineage. We did an episode on her. It's a fascinating place to visit her house and, and the tower where she was kept in, in, in prison. Yeah. Uh, I think what yeah. stood out to me when I read that chapter in your book was how you, you you play with the idea that she possibly could have avoided prison, where where they came yes. to they came to question her, said you know who and obviously in those days there was no Instagram, Facebook, or facial recognition, so yes. they didn't know who was who, and you know maybe share a little bit about that because yeah. that, that really stood out to me that 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 point and how she yes. she took a stand. Yes, I think that was something that I wanted to play with because when I when I was reading, there's really not a lot of information on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's even less information on her in English. <laughs> and I can't read French. I remember we struggling. I read a little bit of it. I can, you know, manage with the dictionary. But I uh, I remember reading this one article on her that was really good. That was in French that I was struggling through. But it was it's it's difficult to find information on her. And so. With uh, when I looked at some of the information that was available, one of the things that was suggested in one of the books that I read was this idea that she was and there's a dispute here. Some sources say she was just engaged to Matthew Ceres. Uh, the others say she was married. Mm-hmm. And there's this one piece of information that I read um, that talks about how she was actually married to him 
but she chose to keep her own name. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. The Marie Durong was a family name. That's right. Durong was her family name. Now, if she had changed it to Ceres, they wouldn't potentially, you know, she could have kind of, you know, she could have gone undercover and not gotten into trouble because the reason she was arrested was because of Pierre Durong, because of her mm-hmm. brother. Because he was a pastor and they arrested his entire family and extended family. Um, but, um, you know, when you read, I read some of the letters that have been translated in, into English of, you know, that, that Matthew had exchanged with her. And it sounds like they're married when you read those letters, mm-hmm. the way he talks about, I can't wait for us to be together again, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went with the I went with the premise that they were married. Um, and I wanted to look at, explore this idea of how she could have taken her husband's name and dodged the bullet. But she didn't. Um, she she kind of kept her own name. And it's mm. really interesting. We know she kept her own name because it was entered as Marie Durong into the roles. In the of prison, power. yeah. And yeah. so, you know, that was really, I thought that was fascinating. And, and interestingly, recently I found out she, you know, it wasn't Marie Durong. Marie Durong was the only one who did that. Anne Askew, another Protestant in England, she did that as well. You know, this idea of holding on to their own names when they could have hidden their identities in with their their husbands um and yet they didn't choose to do that they chose to hold on to their own names and potentially pay a price because of it i thought it's really interesting um mm. and i wanted to look at that because i thought it was really brave of her to do it yeah, yeah. i mean 38 years in prison when she could have yeah. potentially said i'm you know i'm somebody, I'm somebody I'm else like, and, yeah. and 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 avoid that but she <laughs> owned up to a brother being a pastor and, and pays yeah. for it, you know for decades of her life it brings right. me on a quote from well it's not a phantom quote but I can't remember what it's from but there was one of the reformers who who could have dodged a martyr's death as well but he said it comes there comes a time when the bravest of men just have to kind of take a stand and 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 stand where they are and and and, and take it but I I wanted to explore that what you mentioned earlier about the the the, the mirror of the sinful soul that, that, that Margaret of Navarre wrote and the, the Catherines that you put in your book at the, the last two chapters is Catherine Parr and Catherine Brandon. I found those fascinating. Firstly, the, the the second Catherine lives about thirty minutes from my house, which I thought, wow, you know, when 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 this Corona COVID thing's over, I'll go pay it a visit. And 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 secondly, we learn the history of the mid 1500s, which is a very interesting part of British history with Henry VIII and Edward and then, you know, Lady Jane Grey and then Mary and, and so on. But as I was reading that, I just thought of the strategic role that, that, that a woman played in that whole thing mm. um, that ties history. So, um, so when I was um, originally the the Catherine Powell was not in the book. I had written a short story on Anna Zwingli. And then when my editor read it, she was like, no, you can't put that. <laughs> Either you fix that story or drop it and pick somebody else. <laughs> and so I was like, I looked at Anna Zwingli again and I thought, oh, I can't fix it. Like I can't make it as fun as the other ones. And then I'd already read a, a book on Catherine Pine. So I went in to, you know, went to dig and I bought a, a historical book that was done by an academic on her and I read mm. it and I was, what stood out to me, so many things that stood out to me about Catherine Parr. The first thing that stood out to me was that she was an author. 
Mm-hmm. At a time when there were very, very few to none female authors mm-hmm. in England. Um, and then she, she was published. She, she self-published. Um, and so that I found fascinating, but she was also a translator. She translated the Bible, uh, which was really interesting because, you know, a lot of the, I mean, up to that point it was just Wycliffe and Tyndale that it really had a go at publishing, I mean, pr- translating the Bible into English, but she translated portions of the Bible, mm-hmm. the Gospels. Um, and she, because of that, she had this huge influence on the ladies in her apartments, in her rooms. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that really stood out to me about her was that she was married. She was twice married before she married Henry VIII and she never had children. She just had stepchildren from her second marriage. Mm-hmm. And so when she came into this marriage with Henry, she had these three stepchildren. She was about 30 when she married Henry. Um, and at that time, Mary, Mary Tudor, who later became Mary I of England, she was 27. And the other two, Elizabeth and Edward, were, were really young. I think Elizabeth was nine. Edward was like five. Um, and she kind of, she really wrapped herself around Elizabeth and Edward because both of them didn't have mothers. Elizabeth's mother was beheaded when she was two and then Edward's mother died giving birth to him. And so Catherine just kind of adopted them as her own. And then as she continued to study the Bible, she was influenced by by Cranmer, by, by Latimer, by Ridley. As she, you know, she was influenced by them she began to make sure that the children, Elizabeth and Edward, were raised Protestant. She got some of the best Protestant tutors for them mm-hmm. from Cambridge. Cambridge at that time was a hotspot of Protestantism. All the great Protestant thinkers were at Cambridge. And so she got these tutors. She raised these children in Protestantism. And, you know, Edward was going to be monarch after his father died. And so I really like to play with this idea um, because I think... I thought, and my, you know, my editor and I discussed it as well, but we thought it was really interesting that she, as a mother, she invested in this five-year-old boy, invested in him spiritually, mm-hmm. invested in him academically, so that when Edward took the throne, England became really strongly Protestant. Um, yeah, you know, he was much, yeah, very strong. Yes, and the reforms that he brought about uh, what turned the tide um, in England towards a more like towards the Reformation, towards Protestantism. Henry VIII was just dabbling, you know. He was neither here nor there. He he broke with the Church, um, you know, broke with the Catholic Church, so that allowed Protestantism to kind of seep into England. But it wasn't really a strong stand that he took. But Edward was a strong Protestant, and that was because of the investment that that Catherine made from a very young age. She was five when she when she um when she got married to Henry. And so I thought that was really, really interesting, really important the investment that yeah, she I made. Yeah, I find that fascinating. You know, she like you said, she didn't have her own kids and mm. she probably didn't want to marry Henry the Eighth either. No. And <laughs> so she finds herself married to this this crazy king who's killed all these other women and yeah. got rid of them and, and but yet she 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 makes it invest in in the in in the situation where she can and change the trajectory of of the nation really yes yes you know i was it would have been scary because a previous queen the queen that came before her was catherine too catherine howard and she was beheaded mm-hmm. and she then step into those shoes <laughs> you know henry was such a volatile man he'd he'd like 
beheaded two of his queens, exiled another. Like he was, he was just a little nuts. And so to come into that situation and then to love the kids and to invest mm-hmm. in them. She, I really, I believe she really did change the religious trajectory of the nation because uh, even though Edward died young and then you had, uh, you know, Mary's brief reign when she was, you know, mm-hmm. um, and she reverted the, the, uh, the England back to, Catholic, back to, yeah. to Catholicism. Then came Elizabeth who reigned for a long, long, long yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, Elizabeth was deeply um, inspired by Catherine, you know, uh, not just in terms of her spirituality, but what it looked like to be a spiritual minded monarch, because there was a period of time when Henry was in France that he left Catherine to be regent of England. And she managed uh, England while he was away. Hmm. And that would, and when, while she was regent, um, the kids came to stay with her. Uh, and so Elizabeth would have seen her, um, you know, she would have seen her praying, translating the Bible, and then mm-hmm. also ruling the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So she would have understood the dynamics of being a Protestant monarch. Uh, when she watched, yeah. yeah, when she watched Catherine, she that would have been a, a key influence. Catherine was a key influence in her life. What do you think about the the episode in her life? And I've read it in other other places as well, where the it appears like she was going to she was going to suffer the fate of, of, of her predecessor and, you know, be dethroned or killed or, or, or something like that. But yet she, she manages to placate her husband's anger or, or yeah. pride or something and, and, and stays on. And I, I found kind of maybe tran what's the word? Comparing that with Marie Duran or some yes. of the other, the other stands kind of interesting yeah. that each woman made maybe a different stand, but still. I thought it was interesting to write those stories because I think that um, just the variety of it, you know, you, the idea that you don't always have to be a martyr. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Marie was mm-hmm. almost, almost a martyr. Like she suffered yeah. for her faith. She made hard choices because she didn't she she didn't have any other choice because to mm-hmm. do so would be to lie about her faith, you know, yeah. to. To that's hide key. under the that's name. The key point, I think, that's yeah. the key, right? To hide under the name Cerez, to pretend not to know her brother, would be to deny her faith. You know, she was a Protestant and she didn't want to deny that. And the only way that she could stand for that was by saying, I am Marie Durand. In Catherine's case, the issue wasn't her Protestantism. Uh, the issue was uh, re- religious politics uh, mm-hmm. in in the English court. The issue was that p- the that the the court of England was divided that she understood. I think she understood what was at stake. Um, I mean, I like to think so when I read it, I mean, there, you, you never, you, with history, you never know exactly what happened because you weren't there. You're reading mm-hmm. things that, you Someone know, else's account, somebody yeah. else's account of it. But when I look at it, especially when I look at Fox, Fox's account of it in Fox's book of martyrs, um, he would be the closest because he wrote those, he, I mean, that particular one was written in 1584, which was very, very close to the event. So, you know, you, you're going to want to take that as a primary source. But it's just this idea of how people like Stephen Gardiner um, were wanted, wanted the court of England to become Catholic again. They wanted some form of power and they could see that the, the advisors around Henry the you know some of Henry's strongest advisors at that point were Edward you know Edward the sixth uncles the Seymours mm-hmm. uh, Edward Seymour and Tom Seymour they were they were Protestant you know um, and so there was this there was just this factionalism there and hmm. 
Catherine got caught in the crossfire. They knew she was Protestant. They knew uh, Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer was also, you know, I mean, Henry, Henry VIII died holding Cranmer's hand. And so these were people that were deeply Protestant and they were close to the king. And then people like Stephen Gardiner, Thomas Riothersley and Richard Rich, they were on the other faction. They were the Catholics and they kind of wanted some of the power because they were afraid what would, you know, what's going to happen to us when Henry dies? Are we going to lose our heads? lose our positions, you know. So it was just this factionalism. They wanted to get rid of the queen because they could see the kind of influence that she had on the prince, Edward VI. They could see the Protestant influence mm-hmm. there. They wanted to get rid of her and they played on Henry's ego. Henry didn't like outspoken wives. That's the bottom line. Um, mm. Catherine of Aragon was extremely outspoken. He got rid of her ruthlessly. You know, she died in Kimbolton Castle of just cold and old age and neglect. And then Anne Boleyn was also loud and outspoken. Couldn't give him a son. He beheaded her. He liked Anne of Cleves because when he told her to step aside, she quietly did what she was told. Um, Catherine Pa started to debate with him on spiritual topics. Henry was a man with a massive ego. He did not like it when people told him that he was wrong. That was a pro- one of his biggest problems. You know, he killed his courtiers, some of his best advisors, because he just didn't like it that they were better than him. And so when she came and she started debating with him, you know, they could play on his ego. Uh, this fact that, you know, your wife is <laughs> smarter, mm. trying to act smarter than you. So she understood the issue at stake was not so much that Henry wanted to kill her because she was Protestant. The issue was more that, you know, she was part Mar- of this elaborate... Marital politics. Yeah, yeah. Marital, and, and court politics. Court, and so yeah. she played it well. She just, she didn't deny her faith, but she just told him, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, dis- you know, you're, you're smarter than me. I'm not trying to dispute with you. You know, you're my husband. You're in charge. She kind of just mm. stroked his ego and he backed down. Mm. He still had a bit of a he still had a bit of drama left in him because he didn't tell. <laughs> yes, and that again is classic Henry VIII because if you look at the politics of his time, the way he handled his courtiers was like that. He liked he understood the factions, and he liked to play them against each other so that none of them would have power, hmm. so that he would always be the linchpin. It was he he did that numerous on numerous occasions. You know, when he ever, he felt like somebody was getting too was gathering too much power, like Thomas Cromwell. He beheaded them for trumped up reasons. You know, he just, oh, he played them against each other. And so this was classic. He could see that people like Gardiner and Rathesley were kind of, you know, getting a bit too big for their boots and he let them go. And then when Catherine kind of humbled herself, he was like, oh, well, you know, they, they weren't useful to him anymore. He didn't want to humble his wife anymore. She'd already humbled herself. So she was like, oh, he was like, well, let's play this, you know, let, mm-hmm. let me play this mm-hmm. against them. He was a really... um he was a really interesting monarch, but yeah, I think in the 16th century, one of the big things that that a lot of the reformers, men or women, had to deal with was the line between something that was politically motivated versus something that was principled. And there were a lot of things in their world where where religion and politics mixed because of the way the the church was, the way the church operated. The Catholic Church operated in both the spiritual and the uh, temporal realm. Uh, for example, the King of France got his, his sovereignty to rule came from the church, you know? So if they, de- if, if France defected from the church, where would the sovereignty of the King come from? So it was so closely tied. So, so inevitably the reformation became politicized. 
Um, but it was also a movement of ideas, a movement of principles, a movement that was based on the Bible. And so you see this, this tension between the politics of the time versus the principles of the time. Um, mm. And that was a really fine line, actually, for people to tread. And I thought, mm. yeah, that's what that's the difference between Marie Durand and Catherine Powell. Marie Durand was principles. Catherine Powell was just really navigating the politics. Um, mm. And she did it really well, I thought. That's good. Good. Yeah. Appreciate you dividing the issues uh, there. Who, who would you say, uh, maybe as we come towards, who would you say is your favorite character? Do you have a favorite one or do you just like them all in different ways? I think my favorite's Louise de Coligny, um, only because she was she was in Paris when the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre happened. Again, mm. I not heard about the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre till I worked on the Lineage episode, and uh, and then I was just shocked by what I read. Uh, but I thought it was really fascinating because she was in Paris the night the massacre happened. Happened. Her father was one of the prime targets. He mm. was assassinated. Her husband was killed. She escaped. Um, escaped to Switzerland. And then the um, and then the the crown wrote to her and told her that if she recanted her fate, they would give her her assets back. And she told them, "Forget it." Um, and then she married William of Orange, who was also massively Protestant, massively mm-hmm. Protestant champion. And then he was shot, um, like yeah, like her husband and yeah. And yet, even after that, she continued to be faithful she had a huge influence in the Dutch Reformation after that after her husband was shot she continued to be faithful and I thought how many people can go through what she, the trauma that she went through you know I was reading a letter uh, a snippet of a letter where she writes I saw my husband and my father killed before my eyes uh, and I, I, I incorporated that into my story because yeah, I was like, how yeah. would she have seen him die? And I kind of imagined how it would have happened but she says that you know so imagine going through the trauma of seeing your father die she saw I don't know what the, I don't think she saw her first husband die, but I know she saw her second husband die. As you know, you go through this trauma after trauma and yet to still be faithful to God, to still not walk away from God, to still not mm-hmm. shake her face to God. I, I was just um, just so inspired by her story, uh, by her faith. Yeah. yeah, it's a fascinating chapter. Fascinating mm-hmm. chapter. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to share with us. Um, kind of. And, and these snippets of the of the women we've mentioned, Margaret, Marie, and Catherine, and and, and Louise, and but there's there's more in the book. So for those of you who are listening, if you haven't got your hands on a copy of the book yet, uh, please do get get yourself one ordered and, and and read these inspiring stories of these women of generations ago. But just remind us of the the, 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 the those three key points you wanted to share again as as, okay. as we close. Yep. So religious liberty, um, courage, and faith. Those were the three things that I wanted to really explore in the book. Mm. Mm. And those are three things that we all need to remember today, that the importance of religious liberty, especially in these times in which we're living, where we're seeing, you know, rights being reduced in different countries around the world and the importance of having courage Mm. in the hard times we live in, the importance of being men and women of faith. So Mm. thank you for writing the book. Thank you for being part of the Lineage Journey team. And thank you for providing this resource to to those who 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 wish to get it on on how they can educate themselves more on the role of women in the Reformation. Mm-hmm. So thank you for taking the time to be with us on this Lineage Journey podcast. And, thank you for having me. And for those of you listening, thank you for listening to the Lineage Journey podcast. And we hope to see you for our next episode in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Lineage Journey is supported by your generous donations. Did you know that you can donate on a monthly basis? Any amount 
from $2 to $100 or whatever you decide through patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. Your donations go towards the cost of producing our varied content and we thank you for your support. <laughs>